everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chong. Hey everyone, the winter holidays and New Year's are coming up and I just hope that wherever you are, you're able to spend some time with your friends and loved ones. It can be hard these days even to do just that, so really cherish these moments. I only have one last episode to share with you before the end of the year, which is also the last episode from the Rogers Art Loft series that I conducted this past summer. Don't worry. I will see you all in January, so without further ado, I want to present Dr. Erica Abad, a queer Latina poet born and raised in Chicago. Dr. Abad received her BA in Latin American and Latina Latino Studies from DePaul University and her PhD in American Studies from Washington State University. Prior to her move to Las Vegas, Dr. Abad was an oral historian for the Center for Puerto Rican Studies, Hunter College. Beyond Puerto Rican, Latinx, and gender studies, she is a well-published essayist, poet, and fiction writer, most recently writing a poem and creative reflection on the Pulse Orlando tragedy. She is also a regular writer for women in higher education. Erica and I chat about writing during difficult times, giving feedback to students, without minimizing their experiences, queer fandom, and being mindful. This was a live recorded event that was hosted by the wonderful Land Smith of the Rogers Art Loft. Until next year, stay safe and healthy, and have a wonderful winter holiday. We will now begin the Seeing Color live interview with Zivan Chung and teacher, writer, and social justice advocate, Dr. Erica Abad. We appreciate a full audience tonight in support of Ziwan and Erica, and in support of the Rogers Art Loft. The Rogers Art Loft is made possible by the Rogers Foundation, dedicated to transforming lives through art and education in Southern Nevada. Hi, my name is Lance L. Smith. I am the director of the Rogers Art Loft, and I'm so grateful to have you all here with us this evening. Uh, to briefly introduce Ziwan and Dr. Erica Abad, Ziwan Chung, our current artist in residence, received a BFA from Cornell University and his MFA from Carnegie Mellon University. Ziwan's first uh, got a taste of performing in front of a camera as a book reviewer for Reading Rainbow. Since then, Ziwan has continued to probe the intersection of national identity and the personal psyche as an odyssey towards a home that does not exist, a rite of passage with no destination. Ziwan uses his work to search for critical understandings of an impossible homecoming. And now more about Dr. Abad. Dr. Abad is the assistant professor in residence for the Interdisciplinary Gender and Ethnic Studies Department at UNLV. While her primary training has been in queer and Latinx studies, working in customer service, Latino youth advocacy and food justice has added to our initial insight on queer Latinx individuals, representation and community building and social movements. Since 2017, Abad has presented at Selexicon, an annual media and entertainment convention for female LGBTQIA community members and its allies, and organized its first academic lab in 2019. Extending her interest in queer women's representation, 
she's guest edited the issue of Sinister Wisdom, which was published in late 2019. Before working in Las Vegas, she was a Chicago-based oral historian and ethnographer for the Center of Puerto Rican Studies. Her expertise has been published in Sounding Out, Latinx Talk, Women in Higher Education Newsletter. Abad is also a well-published essayist, poet, and fiction writer whose creative work has been published in Sinister Wisdom and Crab Fat Magazine, among other venues. And now I would like to introduce Dr. Abad and Zivon for them to begin their talk tonight. We thank you all so much for being here with us. Thank you, Lance, for that wonderful intro. And uh, thank you, everyone at Rogers Art Loft as well for, um, you know, being such a wonderful host and setting all of this, these talks up. And uh, I want to also thank Dr. Eric Abad for being part of this conversation. So thanks. And thank you, everyone, for joining from wherever you are on Zoom, Facebook. I think we're also on Twitch. So thank you for joining us. And um, yeah. How are you doing, Erica? I'm good. Yeah. Um, it's been a busy writing summer yeah. in a good way. Yeah. And I'm dabbling in a few things. So I had what I think I started two new pieces of fan fiction uh-huh. based on the television show Love Victor, as well as returning to an old one. I just I was like, this is too long to continue working on. I should just make it a novel. And then <laughs> writing my working on my own novel manuscripts based on a short story that I had started during the Chicago snowstorm of the January 2015. Okay. And I had been working with women and queer folks of color, a handful of us. We were meeting monthly to discuss our works and then to figure out if we could find venues where we could send it. Yeah. And they were just like, but we want more, Erica. And I said, but... I, <laughs> and so 25 chapters later, I obviously... Agreed. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I feel like quarantine has allowed a lot of time for introspection, yeah. not just on craft for me, introspection as well as on how to work and talk to students about craft. Right. Because we're writing during difficult times, mm-hmm. whether it's the academic stuff, the fiction or the nonfiction. And it reminds me of the importance of being able to reflect on the role of environment and mm-hmm. creating and fostering a healthy relationship with writing. I was just telling, I think my mom the other day, that I can look back at a lot of major writing deadlines in my life and be like, I was going through it. The environment is really important, right? Where we grew up, yeah. you know, what's happening in our lives and whether also, you know, kind of like talking about difficult times, whether you have time to even do the stuff that you want to do, right? I think all those things kind of affect the capabilities and the quality of the work that we would like to do. Mm-hmm. I think about that a lot and, you know, I, I want to get into it uh, also in relationship to academia. I know you talk a lot about academia and the role it has on, you know, diversity and, and also the types of work that kind of... Is is produced from that sort of system. Before we get into all of that and also your fan fiction, I was curious, you know, could you tell the listeners and everyone joining us, you know, a little bit about, you know, where you grew up? And also we were just chatting before and I guess we found out that we kind of grew up sort of quite close to each other because I grew up part, part of my time in, in New Hampshire and you went to boarding school very close by. Actually, my sports team played against your sports team quite a bit. I remember yeah. And I apologize because I used to know the answer to this. So I I grew up in what is now called Chicago, Illinois, um, for the first 14 years of my life in a strong immigrant community 
Catholic school because that's mm-hmm. what my mom wanted for us. And then as a child of divorce and a twin, my sister and I had the, both the need and the merit to get a full ride to a boarding school called Deerfield Academy in the Pacumtuck Valley where I finally had a computer and free printing. And mm. as someone who was dabbling with trying to write fiction since I was nine, technically. Mm -hmm. The idea of having access to a computer and a printer was like heaven. I was in the computer lab and I'm dating myself because I believe my boarding school now has computers in all of the students' rooms. I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, I was in the uh, computer lab every free minute working on something. Uh And, you know, with small classrooms, free printing, Mm -hmm. strong internet, you know, as a writer, I was in heaven. Yeah, yeah. And I was really spoiled. And I knew that because, you know, at home I was using old notebooks from school I didn't finish to work ideas out to dabble in what I thought was poetry. And then I went to high school and they're like, nope, it's a go. Okay. (laughs) And really just get lost in worlds I created. And one of the things I feel very privileged and it's a double-edged sword, and we'll get there. Yeah. Is that I had the time and the resources in the small classrooms to really think about mm-hmm. craft as a young person. Mm-hmm. I also knew that there weren't a lot of people like me in my classrooms. And in talking to my sister, I'm a twin. I often discuss how so much of my positive relationship with writing and teaching comes from having so many educators who had the means and the resources to be invested in me. Like teachers were complaining where 15 students was a large classroom. And anyone in Clark (laughs) County or in the public school system knows it's like 15 is large. What are you talking about? And be in that environment where that was the frustration. Yeah, yeah. Knowing that my childhood friends who were in the public school system didn't have that. Yeah, yeah, It was yeah. a wake-up call for me. Yeah. And then I realized that there were less college professors and then there were K-12 professors. And I was fortunate enough to decide to pick a school where I had more professors who looked like me who were like, why not go to grad school? You'd be awesome. And here I am. When you went to school, did you go to school for writing or for art? What did you go to school for? So one of the things I learned in high school, I didn't have to take Western Civ. I took, so I was learning about U.S. intervention across the world. Okay. In history, in my history classes. And Uh so I didn't study English. I didn't pursue creative writing because I wanted to write historical fiction. And Mm. I feel incredibly privileged that one of my history classes taught us history through fiction and it blew my mind Mm -hmm. so i was like oh people can like do research and then write fiction and then just (laughs) make it historically relevant what what is this um and so when i was looking at schools i mean i was looking at english degrees but at the end of the day i wanted to read and study the histories Mm. the literary practices of people who looked like me and Mm -hmm. who were similar to me okay and Funny enough, my mom, you know, all her kids were out of the house. So she would go out and in going out, she met a sociologist who was studying how different Latinos were dancing salsa. And he Uh happened to teach at DePaul University. Uh And so my junior summer after my junior year, there I am meeting with him and he's just talking to me. And I was like, I'm done. There's a Center for Latino Research and all of these things. And then I get to DePaul's campus And within a month, I'm working for my major's office and writers come in through the real house. Ana Castillo was teaching there at the time. Achio Bejas came to visit. Tato Laviera was there around my junior and senior year. And so, I mean, I was like a young Latina aspiring writer who was meeting people who, like me, who wanted to write about their communities and write about their histories. And they made it look easy. 
Mm. Well, not really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's like really wonderful. I mean, I'm thinking just back like how long it took me to find what I wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about this also before, just sort of like, you know, I started this podcast with the intention of meeting, I guess, those people that, you know, you you met within that first year and mm-hmm. just sort of also how difficult it is, at least I think in most landscapes, most academic landscapes to come across that, right? The rarity of that and, and having that, you know, the breadth of meeting something that's sort of outside sort of the uh, white academic setting, right? Definitely. And I had not only the privilege of what I was encountering on campus, but I worked with enough faculty that had community ties. Mm -hmm. And there were young people from other college institutions creating spaces to do spoken word readings, youth organizing. Mm -hmm. And that was a norm to me. It wasn't a question of this is what you should do because it's important. It was a cultural norm in Chicago at the moment. And I feel like looking back in the moment, I was frustrated for a lot of reasons. But looking back, I can acknowledge that in the context of where higher ed is now, where living in in a transient city here that has a vibrant artistic community that people don't think about because they think Vegas and the street. I, I knew I grew up with a great deal of cultural privilege because my city was my museum. Right, right, right. And not a lot of people are at that visible. Right. And I think that's sort of the theme that I've kind of noticed a lot, especially as I've talked to all these different people from Vegas, is just sort of like the it's sort of like there's like two Vegases, right? There's like the Vegas that people visit and then there's the Vegas of all the people living there, right? And it's like they lived in almost two different realities or these perceptions of what Vegas is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I mean, I guess you went to uh, DePaul and then, you know, I think as you were talking about like this sort of idea of academia and also these communities, um, and then you finally, I guess you came to Vegas because of your teaching job. Is that correct? Yes. Interdisciplinary gender and ethnic studies at UNLV. And so the road to a job where I felt I could teach and write because I wanted to and not because I had to was long, mm. right? I'm an Obama era recession grad student because now we have two recessions. And so, you know, as I was completing my coursework and submitting the stuff to propose my dissertation, faculty were holding their breath, as a lot of faculty at public institutions are doing, especially with gender and ethnic studies and other programs that talk about racism, right. U.S. imperialism, colonialism. Mm-hmm. This attack on critical right. race theory, right? Right. And so, I mean, arguably, you could say the attack was always under the water. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we're teaching people to be socially conscious and to critically examine the policies about how we got here, why we're here, and what Mm -hmm. we have access to, right? Right, having the difficult conversations. Having the difficult conversations because the difficult conversations are important when, despite a large immigrant history, when you're reading about us in healthcare, assimilation means we have, we're more apt to receive it. And I was like, let's break that down a little bit more, shall we? Mm -hmm. I was doing that research for something else I'm working on. And so we're... My mom has worked in healthcare all of her life, and I remember being young, and when they couldn't find an interpreter, they talked to her, yeah. even though that wasn't what she was trained to do, and I'm just like, yo, people get paid more to do that. And so, yeah, and so that inspires what I do, right? <laughs> my success is, on the sh- are, is built on the shoulders of my mother's hard work and sacrifice, and that's not lost on me. In thinking about, like, I graduated with my PhD, and I was working at a call center because that was the only job I could find. Mm. Where were you at that point? I was in Portland, Oregon. Um, okay. That's a very interesting place. Yeah. That's an interesting... <laughs> and I was in early 2010s Portland, Oregon, which economically looked very different okay. than Portland, Oregon today. And that's not lost on me either. And so I was part of that millennial underemployed generation that was occupying a lot of what is now called 
North Portland. Right, right. Right after Portlandia kind of made it popular, right? Yeah. 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 Doing Dirty Queer, add in other words, which was a poorly represented feminist bookstore in that show Portlandia. And then gardening with other queer folks in neighborhoods and backyards where people could donate. In essence, rent out their backyards, get a tax credit, and then have people grow growing food in them. And, I mean, <sighs> I learned how to work with very little. Yeah. And in that time, because I was working second shift at a call center... I had time to just breathe into my writing. I wasn't writing mm. for my degree. I wasn't writing right, for right, money. Right. I was just really right. working on craft. Right. I would read my poetry at Dirty Queer, mm-hmm. and then I would write my fiction at the call center. I mean, it wasn't ideal. However, as someone who had always gotten yeses in terms of opportunities all of her life, mm. it was a wake-up call about the fragility of right. one affirmative action mm-hmm. in the 2010s, and then two the federal and local divestment in education Mm. throughout my young adult. Right, right. I mean, and I think about this a lot too, right, in terms of like how do we sustain, you know, a career in the arts? And it's like, it seems like, you know, sadly, you know, academia seems to be at the moment the sort of best option in the sense, I think, I mean, we were talking about this earlier, right? Having healthcare, you know, having, you know, all these benefits and having some sort of stability, right? Uh, In spite of all the problems that academia also presents, How do we choose between these difficult options, right, that are presented? And it's not easy, Mm -hmm. right? Like, it's one of those things where I had, like, six or seven jobs between my PhD and this one. Mm -hmm. And some of those jobs were great because there was insurance. And some of those jobs got me out of Portland and the rut I was in. Because the call center I worked at actually closed four months after I left. Mm. Even though they were saying, no, we're not going to close. No, we're not going to close. And I was like, gee, I'm going to just... I'm going to go. Yeah, 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 bye. Mom has an extra room. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and as an artist slash activist, artivistas, if you will, mm-hmm. the road I paved for myself is a rare one mm. in the sense that there are activist writers I know and I love, and they don't have time to write or create or perform. Yeah, yeah. Because they're so busy doing the advocacy work. And the mm. advocacy work is yeah, necessary. Yeah. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the advocacy work then feeds their craft and performance. And yet, for there are a few folks who find financial support and cultural support in navigating both. Right, And it's right. specific kinds of activism, right? Yeah, Depending yeah, Depending yeah. on the moment. Yeah, and so yeah. I was like them in that I'm going to get the job that works and figure out my art later. Right. Because I've got things to take care of. Yeah, yeah. And I love teaching because I love my students. But not every artist wants to go this route because there's so much involved in teaching yeah. that if... It doesn't speak to your art. Yeah. And I've seen artists struggle with this. They can't show up in the classroom. Yeah, yeah. It's a process to be able to translate your relationship to craft into something you can explain to people who are approaching craft from a variety of perspectives. Right. And then also the skills needed for teaching are different skills in the craft Mm -hmm. you know there's the assumption that like because you know how to do something you can teach it but i I, you know i feel like they're very different sort of skill sets and you kind of have to learn how to to sort of explain it and not only that but just learning at least for from an art perspective i think this is also important in the sense that what's important to you in craft can be vastly different than what's important to your students right so unlike the sciences and math where there's like a correct answer for a lot of different things like two plus two is four and that just for the most of the time it is uh you know what's important in the arts is like this sort of ambiguous personal choice that you know you have to acknowledge that your student may not be interested in and that's okay right and that's okay so i taught latina chicana feminisms in the spring 
And I knew I was going to be, a, it was going to be a process-oriented class. And so yeah. Testimonios and Chicana Latina Feminism is like the cousin of Black feminist life writing and women of color right to bear witness, right? And each community calls it mm-hmm. something different based on the particularities of their regional and colonial context. Right, right. Because for us to speak is a political subversive act, whether yeah. we're speaking mm-hmm. in first world diaspora, or in our mm-hmm. communities of origin. And sometimes what we speak requires us to leave, and sometimes what we speak and or perform and or reveal is an act of such subversion that we have to leave home. Yeah, yeah. And so centering the process, I told my students, you write, you do conduct the research that's required in terms of historically contextualizing your project. However, I'm going to be process-centered. And because oftentimes, I mean, when I was a early teacher, my goal was to like bombard students with work, mm-hmm. but I wasn't paying attention to revision. And then I realized I can still be rigorous and integrate revision yeah, yeah, yeah. and peer review and, and having students take the time to respond to feedback. Right. Because so often in the demands of working class commuter students who have more in common with my mom, who is also a returning student than me, mm. if we as educators aren't mindful of the fact that they may not have had normalized time to do work, and we don't provide some of those skills in the classroom, it's going to be hard for them to actually take time to think. Right, right. And reflect, right? I mean, instead of just doing, but thinking, like you said. Yeah. And regardless of the genre of art or writing, that's so important. And yet students are so reluctant. You know, I teach gender studies where students have to talk about their experiences with institutional inequalities. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they reveal things like teaching and having that assignment in a Me Too moment. I needed to take breaks Mm. and reach out to what is now called the Care Center on campus and say, this is a lot to receive from students. How do I give feedback Mm. without minimizing their experiences and their struggles? Right. Mm-hmm. Part of my answer was revising the assignment and having them focus on their privilege. And part of the work is also making sure to refer them to resources that can support them as they're coming to terms with difficult realities yeah. of their experience. Because sometimes, yeah. like you had said, it took you a while to find artists like you in terms of your education. For some students, it takes them a long time to find the environments and the audiences that say, this is exhausting work you're doing in your life and in choosing to live the way that you live. How about we find you a support system because support systems exist for you and using those support systems isn't going to cost you anything. One, because you pay university fees. And two, because if we can support you, then maybe you can have a better experience in your college education. Yeah. I mean, I think about this a lot, right, in terms of like, you know, this idea of mental health and and also being able to speak about it. Also, I think in a lot of immigrant communities, you know, this idea of also mental health is something that isn't talked about, right? In a strange sort of way, like the sort of the white centered ideas of mental health, actually, they're more open about it. You know, I I was watching this movie once where like, I think the character is like a Filipino American movie. And it was like, the mom was like, oh, you know, like, therapy is for white people, right? And sort of like this idea that like, you know, the immigrant family shouldn't talk about it doesn't have to deal with it or doesn't exist right mm-hmm. and a me too paper which is going to be the first of a few for reasons and what i had found in that conversation or in the literature was in 1994 you don't see literature and how to serve immigrants like mm. extensive literature interviewing immigrants about their experiences right, right. until the 2000s at least in my yeah. preliminary findings 
most of the people who are talking about how immigrants navigate mental health or social support around a diverse, right? They're not, I mean, they're in the field, but as advocates, not necessarily as practitioners. Right, right, right. Which is of great concern to me, you know, like I've been in therapy on and off since high school and I've had three therapists of color. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And two of them were bilingual. Hmm. In Spanish. And Mm -hmm. so in thinking about my mother works in healthcare, I know how to navigate health professionals. Right, right. If you don't have a therapist who looks like you or who gets it, it's going to be discouraging. And so one of the first short stories I wrote and published, I looked at, I had a woman of color navigating healthcare precisely because I wanted to highlight how that's a thing that we do. And also introduce the inherent difficulty of being vulnerable mm, about yeah. trauma. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's important to me because we don't we don't talk about it enough in a way that doesn't ask why we think it's a white practice. Right, right, right. I mean, and I was more recently thinking there's this uh, writer Kathy Hong Park who I think is the first she wrote recently uh, at this book of essays, but she was her first. I think the first essay was sort of like. She trying to find a therapist and she finally finds a Korean therapist, someone who looks like her. And she like kind of goes crazy trying to get her specifically with that intention because she's like, oh, you finally understand me. And then the Korean therapist is like, oh, I don't have time for you right now. And she's kind of weirded out by the whole thing and sort of like interesting dynamic of like, you know, how it can be important, you know, to find someone who understands you is not this sort of idea of universalism that everyone immediately understands. And then, you know, I mean, I think about this, thought, you know, especially listening to you talk uh, in past interviews and different podcasts you know, this idea of representation also in television and also you're talking about your fan fiction and sort of this intersection of gender, race, and representation within these different forms of media. And, you know, can you talk a little bit more about like your fan fiction, how you got into it, and, and maybe, yeah, some of your favorite TV shows? So I'm going to give credit to two of my good friends who are also former students, Nicole Espinosa and Ashley Smith, for bringing me into fandom and changing my life. Oh, okay. <laughs> like they literally, I'm, I'm first term at UNLV, and they're like, yeah. so can we organize a panel to go to Klexicon for free? I was like, what is this? <laughs> I grew up on my older brother reading comic books, so like yeah. that world wasn't lost to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I didn't know, and then I walked in, and I was like, "What is this world? And why don't I know more?" <laughs> and then I got immersed in it for for three years, and I'm really grateful to Nicole and Ashley for allowing me to ask these questions of representation that I was interested in within. Puerto Rican and community of color mm-hmm. organizations and movements to something that's as layered, but not as politically difficult in terms of like queer fandom and POC fandom. And so, yeah, yeah. and at the same time, I just saw this influx of queer Latino characters on TV. Yeah, yeah. A couple of which are Puerto Rican. And I was like, yes. And so I got into fan fiction as a way to interrogate how folks are written, like my first fan fiction is Spidey Self Shell fan fiction, and I was okay. really annoyed that even though Zendaya was playing Michelle Jones, she was a black woman in theory, but then she was wearing Joan of Arc, and then she was wearing a mm. suffrage shirt, and I was like, I don't know that yeah. Michelle Jones would wear a suffrage <laughs> shirt knowing yeah. how the suffrage movement treated black women. I don't know that she would do that. I'm sure the white writers thought so. And then reading fan fiction and looking at how fanfic writers just ignored Michelle Jones' blackness. And I was like, yeah, mm, yeah. like I get canon, but I also understand why color conscious casting is important. And so I wanted to write fan fiction that paid attention to things like hair. Mm, One, because... Mm. 
I have curly hair and Mm -hmm. being able to learn how to wear it curly, I had to wait till I was an adult because my beautician aunt did not teach me how to take care of it. And then I delved into this show, La Victor. It was my quarantine fan fiction, right? Like I was just stressed because the world was in quarantine. And I wanted to make sure and talk back to how a lot of the preliminary fanfics and the conversations on Twitter were attempting to villainize one of the parents. And I said, this is really annoying because this is one of the first times we have a Latino family leading the storyline. Mm-hmm. And I want to imagine this differently. And yeah. I'm going to be an academic for a second. Research shows familial homophobia is less informed by race than it is by religion. Okay. Mm. Okay. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's important because a lot of the, and I'm just thinking about this piece I wrote on Love Victor's Dad, a lot of the coverage focuses on how our parents reject us. And that's not always the case. And the way it happens isn't more or less. It's just more grave because as immigrants, other people of color with a very tenuous history with this country, we often have less resources. And so I wanted to write, and I'm glad the writers, the writers did such a good job this season. I'll get there. I wanted to write in fan fiction I wanted to be more compassionate with the parents. Mm, 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 mm-hmm. And the show had was compassionate with one parent who attended PFLAG and like centered on learning toxic masculinity to support yeah. his gay son. Whereas the mom who was played by Ana Ortiz, who played Justin's mom on Ugly Betty, mm-hmm. she was the one with the struggle. But they were so compassionate. And they and the showrunners um, in, the, in an Outfest panel explained why they did what they did. And what I like about that, and especially as I'm thinking about what I want to write and what I want to consume, is being careful. Yeah. I mean, Love, Victor is a show that in its first season is a, hey, queer kids, you want to sh- see a show with your parents and like smooth it out for them? Love, Victor season one. And Love, Victor season two kind of, but skip a few episodes because it gets more grown up with things. That's all I'm saying. And so I like that show that came out around the fifth anniversary of Pulse and centering a father who wanted to do right by his son. So like mad love for James Martinez's Armando Salazar, right? In the historical evolution of Latino characters coming out on TV, there tends to be reluctance of support and we don't get the screen time Mm. for Latino parents that is compassionate and tender and nuanced like we do with Love, Victor. And I want to see that more. Yeah, and I think the larger issue is just sort of like having sort of a wide range of experiences and representation, right? I think a a lot of times we end up putting all our hopes into like the very few that exist out there, right? And then we expect these shows to kind of do everything. Yeah, and you know, as a person who looks for content that looks like me and who's also not writing about it sometimes it's exhausting because it hits too close to home one of the Mm. things i love about love victor fans reaction to season two is they were frustrated because they didn't want to deal with what they were living Mm. on screen and i said the show wasn't just written for you it was also written for your straight family and friends who are struggling with you so if you look at it that way be a psa in that way yeah 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 you know you were telling me earlier also that you were currently working on a novel which is sort of based off of publication that just was released uh sinister wisdom um um, and you want to talk a little bit about your novel and how it interests, I think it intersects directly really well, like you said earlier, with your fan fiction and sort of how that sort of became its own thing. So one of the things, you know, I've been living honestly as queer for almost 13 years. Mm-hmm. And so 
And since I've come out, I've lived in like four different cities and okay. I've had to negotiate the extent to which I decide to be out at work and with whom. Right, right. Because right. I want to integrate slowly and mm-hmm. I know for better or worse, I'm, I'm cis and straight passing mm-hmm. and I want to get comfortable before I get vulnerable. That's mm-hmm. how I work. Yeah. And so the idea of lesbians in the city came up because when I lived in Portland, none of my friends were from Portland. They were from Arizona, they were from Uh Cali, they were from other areas in the Midwest. And even when I moved back to Chicago, I met queer folks who were from Michigan, Wisconsin, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's this social cultural reality that different cities are known for being queer friendly. Mm -hmm. And I wanted an issue that didn't focus on California or New York as queer meccas, which was hard, right? Like there's a strong gay, lesbian, queer community in Atlanta, in Miami, Chicago's discussed a lot, in Portland, I mean, Seattle, among other places, Las Vegas. And so what does being queer in those places look like? Mm-hmm. I know there's Dennis McBride has written a little bit about LGBT Las Vegas, but there's still so much more to write, especially given the experiences of the LGBTIQ, AGNC, and B community, who's also black and brown here. Yeah. And so all of my movement, I know that often we move to queer friendly cities, but we also move for jobs that allow us to live honestly. Right. And on top of that, my book set in Portland, It takes the gardening, it takes the queer-friendly Catholic church, and it goes to town. And so in that issue, I also wanted to call attention to how I've met people over the years who, once they landed in a queer-friendly site, were also able to fully sit and honestly with their gender identity and expression in ways they couldn't at home. And sometimes it wasn't even because they weren't from a place like New York or Chicago. It was Mm -hmm. simply the act of leaving home that allowed them to exhale. Because the pressures of home and sometimes it's easier for us to reinvent in a new place than to adjust and wait for everyone to catch up to us where we're from, which makes home so hard. And the reason I chose a gas station as the cover of that issue is because we're always on the move, Mm -hmm. right? Our rights vary from state to state. Our economic and healthcare protections vary from state to state, despite recent policy. And so... I wanted to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. And I felt like picking, I think the artist is based in Tennessee. An artist painting a gas station was the best way because in the transnational context, the term is sexile Mm. that scholars often use. And then regionally, some scholars and folks want to use the term nomad, right? right? And it's not just moving for economic affluence sometimes it's just moving for economic and political stability right, right. and even as we continue to move and i'm not writing about this yet and i want to read more about it we no longer centralize queer folks no longer centralize ourselves in neighborhoods and queer folks of color don't have rarely ever um if and i'm looking forward to what the 2020 census results are because in 2010 that's not what we found we most queer folks of color tend to live in concentrated ways where there are folks of color yeah, because racism for many of us is harder than queer and homophobia. Yeah. And then when you combine both of them at the same time, it gets to be even more. I mean, and also what you just said, you know, I think about this lot also in relation in a strange way to the similarities of reinvention also for our parents, right? Like they, in a sense, had to do a similar sort of reinvention with different purposes sometimes. But, you know, like you said, queer folks kind of moving all over um, the U.S. for economic reasons, but also for a place that they can also be themselves. I think our parents and a lot of other immigrant parents also move 
and have to do that sort of reinvention also, right? Yeah. And so there's a sort of similarities, but also differences. But yes, I mean, our parents often have to do that, right? Like yeah. my mom's dad and stepdad. Yeah. Yeah. And so my family moved here seeking reinvention, better opportunity, and better air because my father's allergies in his in Dominican Republic were atrocious. Mm. And they did. And so... As a child of immigrants, right, I know the historical and political context about why my parents' families came here. My moving was very, very different than theirs, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm in my late 30s. I'm single. But I also have this robust career and all of these adventures across the country that I'm very grateful for. And I could do that because specifically my mother's choices were and also that her consistent and persistent encouragement of my independence. I mean, letting your Latina daughters go to a boarding (laughs) school because it's the best opportunity for them at 14 kind of goes against Catholic Latino stereotypes slash cultural norms. And yet PhD later, because we also both have PhDs. And so we defied the fears of their community members in in choosing the career paths we we have. I have lived all over the country. My sisters visited Europe and Central America for volunteer work specifically. And so... The ethos of what propels us to consistently move is wanting to do good work as well as honor the struggles of the people who came before us. Yeah. And we do it very differently yeah. for all the reasons. Right. And yet one of the things I find beautiful about living in Las Vegas, which is now the longest place I've lived since I was 14, is that I have been able to connect with artists with similar ethics of wanting to tell their community stories and tell their community stories to heal, like me. And as an artist slash educator, I'm in heaven and so fulfilled. Yeah, like you kind of said, like, and I think the difficulty is sort of like, once you are entering the sort of academic field, it can take a while to find, you know, that that community. And in that sense, like part of that finding is like having all these different things sort of line up, right? Job-wise, community-wise, location-wise, um, those are all really important things. So we're, we're coming up on like 10 minutes left. So if Lance, if there's any questions from Facebook or, or anyone who is in the audience, if you have questions, you could send it to us. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, Eric and I will keep chatting as these questions sort of come in. But I guess while we're waiting for questions, uh, Eric, I was curious, um, have, have you seen In the Heights and what did you think about it? I asked because, you know, you talked a lot about Lin-Manuel and we talked a little bit about him, you know, before the start of this. And I heard you talk about it with, you know, Babalito and Justin. I haven't seen it yet. So I was curious, what do you think of the movie? Lin-Manuel as an artist is fascinating mm-hmm. in that he is capitalizing for better or worse, depending on who you talk to, a pan-Latino moment, right? So. Mm-hmm. I saw, and for further context, I saw In the Heights on stage. So my Usnavi oh, okay. was darker than me. My first Usnavi, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And I'm also a scholar who's reading about how Latinos tend to prefer lighter-skinned content. Yeah. So this is where my answer's coming from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Respira is my theme song. Mm-hmm. And as I told Justin Favela, Vanessa being white makes perfect sense. A white-skinned Latina. And so I loved what they did. I love that the grandmother from the musical is also the grandmother on screen. Okay. And I look forward to seeing how different actors careers shift because of their participation in this Mm. musical. Having said Mm -hmm. that, I hope the righteous indignation of the dominance of white, light-skinned characters and people of different ethnicities being cast in this project propel further artists 
to create more content. Mm-hmm. Because if you expect Lin Manuel to do everything, he's going to disappoint you. Yeah, yeah. If you acknowledge that, like he had done with in Hamilton, he just wants to give us more jobs. Yeah. Then how do you speak to the market he is trying to create? Yeah. Not him alone, but right. his work is creating. Right, right. He's going to fail because he can't do everything. Yeah, and also, and, and especially for this movie, which is released by Disney, right, which has a, its own questionable history. But also, like, I mean, the thing that kind of comes up for me is also, like, we need this diversity of stories so that different people can do different things, right? And also, we also need a platform that doesn't necessarily have to speak to everyone, right? Once you speak to everyone, in a sense, diluting who you're speaking to and you're, in a sense, being not really speaking to anyone, right? But Justin is here and he actually has a question for you, Erica. He's like, Erica, what would your dream TV show be about and who would star in it? That's rude. Um, <laughs> it's really rude. Um, I'm going to say it this way. Given where I feel the next TV show about Latinos should not be set in California or New York. Okay, yeah. I feel that it should be set in a place like Las Vegas mm. or even Texas, right? Because mm. Texas has a large Mexican community and then Texas, because of their growing immigrant community, is going to Puerto Rico to recruit bilingual teachers. Oh, they are. And I would love to see a show set in an unexpected place. And I say Las Vegas because Las Vegas, looking what, like what the country would look like, and I would want it to center around a fusion restaurant mm. that speaks to how globalization, a.k.a. how Europeans brought Asian food to the Caribbean, among other places, and integrated African cuisine. Mm-hmm. And that tells that story, but in the Vegas transients, mm-hmm. because I feel like I'm a foodie, so, and Justin knows this. I feel like that would be beautiful to see on screen mm. because there are three queer Latino characters from California, and then there's Pose. And then, mm-hmm. like, I, even, I think Vida Gentified for getting a show are both set in East LA and I think there's another one and I think they're set in either adjacent neighborhoods or the same one well, there, well there's one, one, one day at a time I don't know where one one day where's one day at a time one day at a time is set in Cali and so I'd like to see a show set in Las Vegas in Colorado in Missouri in Georgia mm-hmm. that's Latino centered that has yeah. Central Americans and food and that speaks to how we coexist with each other. Yeah. And in yeah. a non-New York-centric and in a non-California-centric yeah. yeah. kind of way. Yeah. One, because those places are really expensive to live and we're leaving there because they're really expensive to live and it's just, it hurts. I think about it and I'm just like, ugh. Yeah. And then two, it allows us to engage with other communities of color the way that we historically do because yeah. we continue to build off of each other right, and each right. other's success yeah. in mobilization. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what you said about it being, you know, centered in a in a restaurant also allows for that, right? It, it's not this sort of, I mean, I think of, um, you know, the big show for Asian representation recently was like, a movie was Crazy Rich Asians. And that was like this super rich Asian family, right? And that was like the only way that they could kind of represent it had to be this sort of like extravagant sort of way to do it, which is great on one hand, but in the other way, it's sort of like, there's a lot of people whose lives kind of exist, kind of like what you said, like within a non- 
most people don't live that sort of life. And I also was thinking about, you know, the show Kim's Convenience. And I don't know if you heard about the news for that and how it came out that all the writers were white and the cast had to constantly kind of push back against the problematic jokes and storylines that the writers would come across, which is sad because I felt like the first few seasons were uh, had also a lot going for it, right? Yeah, and Netflix account and their Contodo, which is their Latinx-centered production unit, released yeah. four episodes called Visions of Us that okay. document the LGBT Latin community. And I'm referencing that to say, to have Stephanie Beatrice and Wilson Cruz admit that the writers were supportive of them, collaborating with them to construct their gay stories was and bisexual stories was really important. Yeah. And to have it be proactive versus reactive is also what I want to see. And what I also hope scholars and audiences are paying attention to. Like, what are the working conditions we're working under? Mm-hmm, yeah. And like you said, who's casting, who's writing, who's doing makeup, who's doing hair, right? All those different things trickle down. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's sort of, it kind of blows my mind when people are like, oh, those things don't matter. Or those things are kind of superfluous to the whole project. But for me, this idea of a holistic approach, I feel like is sort of the only way to really talk about it openly and honestly. Definitely. And to support our content, right? And buy our books. Yeah. We write books and we have presses. Mm-hmm. And if we want more of us, then that's, we have to put our money where our mouth is. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Erica, do you have anything uh, you want to talk about that we missed? Do you want to do some uh, some promotion, uh, Instagram, uh, upcoming events promotion before we uh, sign off? So I'm currently revising. So I teach at UNLV and I'm, I teach a first year seminar using Hamilton. And because In the Heights came out, I'm integrating that into my course. So I'm excited about that. So I'm going to self-promote my class. If you want to follow how I talk about my teaching process, I'm on Twitter at prof underscore Iabad. Uh-huh. If you want to follow my hiking journeys and my promotion of my <laughs> colleague classes, <laughs> follow me on Instagram with the same account. Yes. And if you are a UNLV student, I'm looking for a class. I know my colleague Tyler Perry is teaching black women in the Americas. And I'm so excited because there's so much amazing scholarship in that field. Um, And it's such a relevant class in these times, given what's happening in Haiti, given what's happening here in the U.S. as well. In Texas, all the voting, all the voting shenanigans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a timeline for when your novel is going to come out? I hope to finish a manuscript by the end of December. Okay. And then I'm going to do the things that I'm supposed to do in terms of looking for agents because it's the first book of a series Mm. of a trilogy. And then Mm -hmm. I have like, Three or four other book ideas. So yeah, keeping my fingers crossed. Yeah, I will keep my fingers crossed for you as well. Thanks. All right. Well, thank you so much, Erica Bud, and um, I was so happy to talk with you. And hopefully, I'll get to meet you sometime in the future when I can go to Vegas. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining. Thank you, Lance, um, and thank you, Justin, for your question. And uh, hope to see all of you soon. Take care. Stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Siwon Chung. Additional help with editing by Tokyo Hong and Mandy Tong. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle SeeingColorPod. If you enjoyed this show and have the time, 
I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now. Thank you.